Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're very pleased to have a special guest with us today, Rian Eisler, who is the best-selling author of The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. She's also authored The Chalice and the Blade and The Power of Partnership. Rian, welcome to the show this morning. Pleasure to be with you. It's so nice to hear your voice. I had the pleasure of hearing you speak and seeing you in person uh, at the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco. Um, Are you a West Coast person? Do you live on the West Coast? Yes, I do. I live on the Monterey Peninsula. Oh, lovely. How nice. How is it there today? Gorgeous. Oh, I bet. Well, you have a very interesting story, Rihanna, and I'm I'm wanting us to start there. Um, you work as a social scientist, an attorney, an author, um, and, and really a social activist over time. And um, you you were motivated to move in that direction because of some of your beginnings as a child. Could you begin and tell us the story of that? Yes, I uh, am very passionate about this work, and that passion really is rooted in my very early childhood experiences. I was born in Europe, in Vienna, at a time that, in terms of the new social categories that my work introduces, the partnership system and the domination system, was a time of massive regression to the domination side of these two human possibilities, the rise to power of the Nazis, first in Germany and then in my native Austria. So from one day to the next, really, my parents and I, uh, we became hunted with license to kill. And I watched on crystal night, so-called because of all the glass that was shattered in Jewish homes, uh, synagogues, businesses. I watched a gang of Gestapo men drag my father off, uh, which was, of course, very traumatic. But I also saw something else, uh, something that I today call spiritual courage. Uh, you know, we're, we're taught to think of courage as the courage to go out and kill the enemy. But I saw what, well, standing up, against injustice, out of love, is a very different kind of courage, and that's what my mother displayed. She recognized one of the young men as a former errand boy for the family business, and she got furious. And she said, how how dare you come here and do this to this man who has been so good to you? And by a miracle, and of course eventually some money passed hands, we we got my father back and we escaped, but my mother could have been killed just as yeah. easily. Um, so those experiences, and we fled to Cuba, and of course because the Nazis took everything my parents owned, uh, I grew up in the industrial slums of Havana. And that too, that economic injustice mm-hmm. in, um, you know, Batista, ruled Cuba at that right. time, again, uh, it all raised questions for me, uh, questions about, well, whether we have to have so much cruelty, so much injustice, so much violence, or uh, whether we can move to a more just, caring uh, way of life, a more sustainable way of life. Mm-hmm. And of course, today, uh, I have a great deal of passion for finding out how to do that, uh, also because I'm a mother and a grandmother, and I'm very concerned mm. about, well, our present course, many of us are very aware, is simply not sustainable. Right, right. Well, in The Real Wealth of Nations, you actually outline an economic system and practical approaches to prove that caring actually pays in dollars and cents, and those, I quote, that's your, those are your words, and um, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about that in our um, in our show today. You know, we've titled the show "Leadership and the Caring Revolution" because we believe that CEOs need to pay attention, and I know you do too. And so, what I'd like you to do is frame um, your understanding of how the corporate world works 
and how caring can make a difference in the corporate world. My experience with corporate people is that the vast majority really want uh, to move to a, well, to a better way of doing things that doesn't uh, wreck our natural environment, that doesn't cause suffering to so many people. And However, there is this entrenched belief somehow that, well, more, you know, more caring practices, practices that really do pay attention to people's needs, to a natural environment, that they're not cost effective. And that is a myth that really today we have so much data showing quite the opposite. And part of my goal in the Real Wealth of Nations is to put together uh, some of the data. Mm-hmm. For example, simple things. Um, the companies that are regularly listed in the Working Mothers or Fortune 500 best companies to work for, uh, these studies show that they actually have a higher return to investment. Uh, as far as policies such as child care. One study showed that companies that invest in child care within a period of four years had a 500% return on investment. Oh, wow. uh, you, you really can't get better than yeah. that. Uh, there are many, many, many more examples uh, in the real wealth of nations uh, because... It stands to reason, of course, you know, actually you shouldn't really need these statistics because we all know that when people feel cared for, uh, they come to life, don't they? Yes, yes. Uh, They want that company to succeed. They're going to work hard to make it succeed because they want to retain their job. So you have lower absenteeism rates, uh, far less costs, uh, you know, much higher retention rates. Uh, and not only that, you really do get greater productivity. And there are case histories in the book of companies, of course. Uh, but again, there is this mental block, isn't there, that somehow this soft way of doing things uh, just isn't effective. It isn't right. cost-effective. Right. And part of uh, what, what every one of us can do is to show that that is simply uh, well, one of those beliefs that is not only untrue but very dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Extremely dysfunctional. So I'm wondering about um, the concept of caring in our organizations today. I, I think the culture of many uh, organizations, business organizations, is that people go to work, they do a good job, um, there's very little socializing that goes on these days within organizations. People tend to not live in the community they work in. There's a lot of commuting going on. People are traveling a lot. Um, and so their friends tend not to be those people that they work with. And so there's, there seems to be less willingness to in, invest emotionally, so to speak. And so does this play into kind of where we've gotten in terms of not caring so much? To some extent, but if you really look back historically, the lack of caring policies and practices as a business uh, tradition Uh, I mean, things were much, much worse, and indeed, uh, people had to fight very hard to get some of the very basic things that we today consider just, well, natural, uh, worker safety, um, not, you know, getting away from 12-hour work days, um, very uh, brutal, really, treatment, uh, of of employees, uh, the sweatshops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in a way, we have been moving toward more caring policies and practices, but of course, that is hardly a universal movement, mm-hmm. uh, and um, we still have, uh, you know terrible sweatshop practices in some of the outsourcing that's happening today. 
and, and I really do look globally because this is an in, inextricably interconnected world. We can't pretend anymore that what happens in a faraway place doesn't affect us. Mm. We would like to, though, wouldn't we? Well, we would like to, mm. but what we would like to is not uh, exactly functional, is it? Exactly. So you have talked a lot about partnership, and you mentioned earlier about the partnership system versus the domination system. And um, I think I heard you say that, you know, our very culture was founded on the domination system. Am I right? Did you say that? Well, I not really, Cheryl. Uh, my work goes way, way back. I mean, I, I, in, in, in my multidisciplinary cross-cultural research, I covered about 30,000 years of history. Wow. And prehistory, of course, in of that, course. because, you know, recorded history uh, only starts about 5,000 years ago, written history. Right. Uh, but it seems, actually, that in many of the... Um, early cradles of civilization worldwide, uh, there was more of a direction of more equality, less violence, more harmony with our natural habitat. Um, and indeed, it's very interesting because my focus was largely on what I know best, which is Western history and prehistory. But after my book, The Trellis and the Blade, uh, was published in Chinese, uh, and by the way, that book is now in 23 languages. Oh, um, scholars at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences tested my cultural transformation theory and found a similar pattern of more partnership early direction and then a shift to what I call the domination system. And, of course, if we look at the last, uh, say, 300 years of Western history, so much of that has been challenging one tradition of domination after another, whether it was the so-called divinely right of kings to rule over their subject or the, again, so-called divinely right of men to rule over the women and children in the, quote, castles of their homes, or the, again, so-called divinely ordained rule of one race over another, all the way down the line to the civil rights movement. The, well, the environmental movement tra- challenges another tradition of domination, right. uh, man's once hallowed conquest of nature, which right. at our level of technological development is very dangerous. Well, we have more to talk about with Rian Eisler. We'll be right back. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. Are you looking for a unique perspective on today's market from an experienced economist? Well, look no further. Listen to The Economic Contrarian with host Mike Norman every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Mike and his guests will discuss new trends in the marketplace as well as emerging companies and opportunities. So if you want in-depth analysis from a contrarian point of view, don't miss The Economic Contrarian Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back with Rian Eisler, author of Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. Rian, we were speaking about the partnership system versus the domination system. And I'm curious, um, you know, with all of this attention that's being paid today to the environmental movement and a move toward leadership consciousness, do you see that the partnership system really can um, gain some ground and and move forward? I, I see it gaining ground at the same time. Uh, let us be realistic here. There is enormous resistance. Uh, there are entrenched not only traditions of dominations, but structures that conform to the domination system from the family, uh, very often to uh, religion, uh, you know, the, the, the so-called fundamentalist religious movement is really not about religion because at the core of all the world religions are partnership teachings of caring, empathy, nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the, the use of violence more uh, even though, you know, the trend has been towards less wars, people, we aren't aware of this because we don't get in our education a long enough or a wide enough uh, picture of human history. Mm. And I guess one of the reasons, you know, people say to me, well, your message is so hopeful. And I say it is really realistic because I have been looking at such a long span of history. I mean, the European Middle Ages, they looked a lot like the Taliban, the Inquisition, the Crusades, the witch burnings. You know, whether you stone a woman to death slowly or whether you burn her to death slowly, it's exemplary public violence to terrorize a subordinated group. Uh, Women had no rights. Children had no rights. Theologians even debated whether a woman has a soul. I mean, we've changed, but it has not been a linear upward movement. Uh, there, it's more like a spiral, an upward spiral with dips. Uh, Hitler was such a dip. Uh, the so-called fundamentalism that we're seeing is such a dip. Uh, the a growing gap between haves and have-nots in the world today is part of that dip. So it is really, if you look at uh, history, not in terms of the old categories, you know, of East versus West or uh, religious versus secular or capitalist versus socialist and so on, uh, you can see these configurations and you can also see that really history consists of the tension between a partnership system or a domination system, regardless of whether it's religious or secular, Eastern or Western. And many people, I have to say worldwide, write me that this, these new lenses, if you will, these new categories have been extremely useful and extremely empowering to them, mm-hmm. clarifying much that otherwise makes no sense, if you will, connecting the dots. Well, and part of connecting the dots comes um, out of your previous books, The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, um, and another book you wrote called Sacred Pleasure. Yes. And um, it's, I, I read the, a description of that book as a daring reexamination of sexuality and spirituality. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote that book? Well, you know, it's very strange. Um, as I looked back, in a way... Uh, the Real Wealth of Nations is the third in a trilogy. Uh, the Chalice and the Blade, of course, among other things, dealt with two ways of looking at power. The Blade, we know what kind of power that represents, the power to control, to dominate, to take life. Very appropriate as a conceptualization of power in a domination system. The Chalice, of course, also represents power, the power to give life, the power to nurture life, the power to illuminate life. And what's interesting, (laughs) in terms of contemporary movement towards partnership, it's what we hear so much about. It's empowering rather than disempowering Mm. way of using power, of of exercising leadership. 
Uh, the second book, as you say, that came out of my research was Sacred Pleasure, and as the subtitle indicates, Sex, Myth, and the Politics of the Body, it addressed sex as well as spirituality. And then the third, uh, economics. So we've got power, sex, and money. <laughs> and the reason is that these are such really, really powerful levers for human motivation and human action. And all of these books tell different stories, different narratives. Uh, For example, you asked me about sacred pleasure, and I started the book by noting something that I found really fascinating, which is that flowers, music, candles, and wine, they are, of course... Uh, the stuff of our most sacred rites. But they're also very much connected with romantic love, aren't they? With sex. And so the question is, why this striking commonality? And could it be that there are some ancient roots to this uh, in a time before sexuality and spirituality were rent asunder? Uh, A time that, as I document in this book, uh, pleasure, uh, sex, life, uh, love, were much more uh, integral to the story of uh, the powers that govern the universe. Mm. Uh, the Well, I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, you had cultures where the world was imaged as a great mother from whose womb all of life uh, ensued, to whose womb all of life returned at death. And then, yes, uh, with the agency of sex as sacred, once right. again to be reborn. Well, you know, and that really is the perspective that you're looking at the whole of life. You're looking at all parts of being as sacred, and so it would make sense that, of course, the sexual pleasure would also be seen as sacred or experienced as sacred. And why have we moved so far away from that as a culture? Oh, as a world. I mean, as a just... world, yeah, because this is really not a Western problem. Right. I mean, this is really, uh, sure, there are still some uh, cultures that have retained uh, more partnership elements. It's, it's interesting, for example, in Europe, the people uh, talk a lot about the Mandragon Cooperative as being yeah. a wonderful example. I well, that was there, Basque, right? yeah. and but the Basque language is uh, really the only living, remaining, pre-Indo-European uh, European language, okay, before the uh, incursion of wave after wave of nomadic Indo-European uh, tribes. Uh, and one of the theories, and I think it's a very credible theory, is that, as I said, in the more fertile areas of the globe, the direction well, it were, if you will, the earth was a good mother. Yes. The direction was more in this partnership direction, but that in the more arid areas, and, and this, by the way, seems to have gotten much, much worse with some severe climate changes, droughts, etc., oh. uh, a different way of living and making a living mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, was developed, orienting more to the domination system. And when things got really bad with droughts, etc., uh, pushing these people out of what were semi-habitable uh, areas to, you know, then you began to get them coming in, and they brought with them uh, their dominator cultures. And so much of a civilization really has been this uneasy mix of some partnership elements with this strong dominator overlay. Mm-hmm. But just because it happened doesn't mean it had to happen. And the whole point, really, of this story is that cultures are human creations. Yes. And today, when we talk so much about greater consciousness, the awareness of that there really is a partnership alternative and exactly what it looks like and what the movement toward it looks like and what the resistance to it looks like, that is very important, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what that could look like. What are some of the examples of what we would be living if we were in a partnership society? 
Well, first I should say, Cheryl, that no society is a pure partnership or dominator culture. It's always a matter of degree. Sure. Uh, but, I mean, even in the most rigid dominator culture, say a Mideastern theocracy or Hitler's uh, 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 Nazi Germany, there had to be some partnership elements for people to survive. Hmm. Uh, but one of the things that my work always deals with is not just deconstruction critique, but reconstruction. And so if you look at the contemporary landscape, you see that not only a few tribal societies here and there, but actually some, some there's been strong movement towards partnership, and you see it most uh, clearly in the Nordic nations, in nations like Sweden, Finland, Norway. They're not perfect, and I again and again have to say this, people seem to accept all kinds of horrible things in domination systems is just the way things are, but if you present an alternative, if it's not perfect, it's not good enough, right? We're going to find this is wrong and that is wrong. But if you look at these nations, they have, of course, the longest lifespans. Um, they have far less crime. They're very economically prosperous. Uh, but let, let, me, let me just give you the configuration because it's very, very interesting. Well, first of all, you know, these nations were very, very poor at the beginning of the 20th century, and today they invariably rank high, not only in the United Nations Human Development Reports, but also in the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Reports. So what happened? Well, what happened was the movement toward more investment in human capital, in natural capital, more caring policies, hmm. uh, universal health care, uh, very good uh, child care, very generous paid parental leave, uh, excellent educational system, but not this teaching to the test kind of stuff, but very child-centered education with teaching a very honored profession. But none of this happened in a vacuum. It happened because the Nordic nations have been moving more and more towards the core configuration of the partnership system. And that's what uh, I think it's very important for us to understand, that it isn't only that they don't have these huge gaps between haves and have-nots, that they have more economic and political democracy, but there are also two areas we have to really look at. One is that these are nations where the status of women is much higher. In other words, there's much more equal partnership between the female and male halves of humanity. Mm-hmm. Women are approximately 40% of the national legislatures. And what happened, it's not just that women voted for more caring, stereotypically soft, feminine policies. Men did. Because as the status of women rises, men no longer find it so threatening to their status, to their so-called masculinity, to embrace these stereotypically feminine values and to fund them. And that well, I want is to talk something more about this basic in just a moment when we come right back. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. 
That's www.alexsaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexsaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back. We're speaking with Rian Eisler today, author of The Chalice and the Blade, The Power of Partnership, and her most recent book, The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. So we were kind of joking during the break, Rian, about um, computers and how I said, can we teach computers to care? Can we write caring into the code? Um, I wonder about the effect of technology on our capacity to um, pay attention to caring. Would you have thoughts on that? Well, yes. Uh, technology, of course, uh, you know, some people see it as the villain and some see it as the savior. And the real issue with technology is what are the values that uh, really uh, de- determine how it's used. But as for computers, as I was saying, I mean, uh, I find my computer very caring for me because as a writer, being able to edit uh, without literally having to use scissors and glue and <laughs> scotch tape to, to cut and paste, it's been a very, I mean, I feel very cared for. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, the truth is, though, that so much of what was meant to relieve us of, well, of rote work uh, is, is kind of pushing us today at a speed that is unsustainable, I think, mm. uh, for the human being. The human being is not a machine, despite yeah. everything you may be hearing yeah. about it. And so all of this speed, of, you know, more productivity, more productivity, I, I think it really uh, forgets what really is productive. Uh, and it isn't making more gadgets. What's productive uh, is caring for people and caring for a natural environment. And that's uh, the starting point for the real wealth of nations, that the real wealth of nations is not financial, that it consists of the contributions of people and of nature, and that, therefore, uh, we need economic systems that give visibility and value to uh, caring for people beginning in childhood of the development of our our human capital, and, of course, of nature, of our natural life support systems. And we don't have that. And this isn't a question of socialism versus capitalism. Uh, It really is a question, well, it goes back to what we were talking about, something that makes people uncomfortable, which is gender. Mm -hmm. But we've got an economic double standard in which caring and caregiving is stereotypically, of course, associated with the soft, the feminine, with women. And we've inherited a system in which one half of humanity, the male half of humanity, and anything associated with it uh, is considered more important, more valuable, than anything associated for the presumably inferior other half, women. And uh, since... Uh, the socialization for masculinity in a domination system is not to be like a woman, right? Because right. this has nothing to do with anything inherent in women and men. I happen to be married to a very caring man, and some women are not caring. Right. 
but uh, it's sort of a mess. So we do need to look at gender when we look at social systems, when we look at economic systems, and people aren't used to this. Uh, but I always like to remind people of what the great sociologist Lewis Worth said. He said that the most important things about a society are those that people are often uncomfortable talking about. And, of course, we saw that with race, and we still see it yeah. to some extent, and we certainly see it with gender. Hmm. So, yes, the fact that, as we were saying, that the Nordic nations uh, have more caring policies, have higher lifespans, have less violence. Mm. Uh, it has a lot to do with a more equal status of women and men, and with this, a giving higher priority to that which is stereotypically considered feminine, mm. the work of caring and caregiving, mm. be it for children, be it for the elderly. They've got a great elderly care program. Uh, you know, it's really interesting with dignity, with dignity, yes, yeah. rather than this is... I have a very dear friend in Finland, and they don't write about their societies, by the way, as socialists, because they're not. Right. You know, I mean, they have market systems, too. But what they write about is caring societies. They don't yes. say welfare state. They say caring societies. Yes, yes. very interesting. So you speak about um, the dominator archetype a bit, you know, a hero as a dominator, and there's lots of, um, of myths and there's lots of lore about, um, you know, demonstrating the hero as dominator. Do we have examples of hero as partner? Oh, very definitely, and we see them really um, in contemporary history. I mean, Mandela. Uh, for example, I mean, here's a man who was imprisoned, and yet he was able to reach out and to say, let us really work together, even with our former oppressors. Um, I think, you know, it's very interesting because when the chalice and the blade came out, there was such an enormous grassroots response that my husband and I, uh, well, we we wrote a workbook um, for, for groups because they were spontaneously forming study and action groups just as study and action groups are now spontaneously forming around the real wealth of nations, by the way, which I'm really excited about. Fantastic. Uh, and we wrote a book called uh, The Partnership Way, and one of the exercises that we had in it was, uh, and, and it's been used by high school uh, teachers, and the kids love it, is to look at TV programs, to look at films, to look at books, and, and, and identifying partnership or dominator heroes and heroines. And it's fascinating uh, when you start doing that because, of course, what you discover is that so much of our unconscious uh, heritage, our socialization has been to idealize yeah. um, precisely in men uh, those qualities that make them less human, violence, right. uh, conquest, Killing, uh, punishing, you know, wait till your father gets home. And that's a miserable way of defining fatherhood. Yeah. And, of course, many men are changing it today. That's the good news. That is the good news. Do you, do you have the belief that people are basically good? I have the belief, based on research, that we humans have the capacity for both goodness and evil. Uh, and by evil, I mean uh, not sinfulness, as it's conventionally defined, you know, that you're being immoral if you, um, uh, I don't know, I mean, if you if you have sexual relations with somebody of the same sex or something like that. But, but really, when you harm other people, we have the capacity to hurt other people deliberately for cruelty, for violence. But so much of that capacity, which of our human capacities, I mean, our capacity to care is just as rooted in our biology. In fact, I would argue even more so, because by the grace of evolution, we humans receive neurochemical rewards of pleasure. We feel great, right, right. not only when we are loved, but when we love another, whether it's a child, a parent, 
a lover, a friend, even a pet, right? Right. right. So a lot depends on our cultural surround. And my research in terms of the partnership system and the domination system was really to answer that question, what kinds of beliefs and what kinds of social configuration, family, Mm. education, religion, politics, economics, support or inhibit either our capacities for caring or our capacity for cruelty, our capacity for nonviolence or our capacity for violence, uh, and so on. That's the question for our future, not, uh, you know, East versus West or right versus left. or You you can have dominator regimes and both are right and left. We've seen it. Well, and our systems, our cultural systems, as you said earlier, have been created by human beings. And so what existed... Um, to drive people t- away from caring, I mean, you know, to the point where they then created the systems that then, you know, supported that behavior that was not caring. I mean, you, you know, what would, what would, um, how would Hitler become Hitler? You know, well, we know, uh, forgive me for, for, for answering so quickly, oh, yeah. uh, with Hitler it really started in his family. Mm. Uh, he was a very, very abused child, mm. very, very maltreated and abused child. But it's much more than that because Hitler, uh, actually he was Austrian, he was born into uh, cultures in which uh, authoritarian male-dominated structures, starting in the family, but really uh, going into the state, uh, into all the institutions, religion, education, politics, economics, were the norm. So when people are brought up, especially in families that are very authoritarian, very punitive, I mean, the studies show, for example, in the United States, uh, men who are brought up in these families, unless they become aware of other alternatives, uh, they will tend to vote for punitive policies rather than caring policies. Mm. They will tend to vote, yes, for the strong man leader, right? right. Who uses force. Right. Right. So, because my work looks at the that. whole system, starting with the primary human relations between women and men and parents and children, you get a much more accurate picture of what is needed to move forward. I want to talk a little bit more about this and how we change the conversation with Rian Eisler when we come right back. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. Mr. Simplicity, Bill Jensen, is on a mission to make it easier for you to get stuff done. He wants you to do less stupid stuff so you can do more of what matters. He'll coach you as a speaker at your event or one-on-one. He'll help you by consulting side-by-side with your teams, and he'll teach you through his books and downloads from his website. Visit today at www.simplerwork.com, and he welcomes your emails at bill at simplerwork.com. Smarter, not harder, is your work and your life, condensed and clarified. Mr. Simplicity is on a mission to make it easier for you to get stuff done. He'll give you the tools you need to do less stupid stuff and do more of what really matters. Let's succeed together. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. 
Business information you need from the stock market to starting and managing your business. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We are speaking with Rian Eisler today, author of The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. Rian, um, tell me about you know, what you hope your work is used for. Well, I know that my work is being used by many people, both uh, in terms of their own lives, their personal lives, their professional lives, and also as a tool for what's uh, essential uh, changing the larger cultural and economic infrastructure mm-hmm. because the rewards uh, or the lack of rewards or the punishments that the society uh, encourages or doesn't has a huge amount to do with what people do or don't do. So, for example, uh, well, in terms of the response to the real wealth of nations, uh, as I said, uh, study and action groups are spontaneously forming, and um, that, I think, is something that everybody can do. People are using this book. They're sending copies of it to their elected representatives. Why? Because we haven't really talked about this. But social policies that invest in caring and caregiving are actually extremely cost-effective. Studies, for example, show that investing in high-quality early childhood education, which is, of course, investing in the development of high-quality human capital, so important, as economists tell us, for the post-industrial knowledge economy, that's one of the soundest investments, and yet we're constantly being told somehow that there is no money for caring for children, caring for people's health. And that's because of what I said, because of this unconscious devaluation of the soft or feminine. So the first step is becoming aware of this and really saying, wait a minute, there's money. It's a question of priorities. Right. You have some examples um, around how things that sound like they're um, really wonderful and caring, like... In our system, we have tax credits for children. But, in fact, that does not help us to actually... That is not a part of a caring economics. Can you explain that? Well, it is part of a caring economics, but the problem is that if you only give the tax credit for the child, the work of caring for the child is still invisible. So what we need are also... uh, tax and refundable tax credits for caregivers. Make them visible. Make that work visible. And that's been proposed. And when I say refundable, that means that for those who are too poor to pay taxes, they actually get a stipend. Uh And you know, these stipends are so really Mm. cost-effective. Well, the Nordic nations show it. uh, You see it in, in the fact that if you give visibility and value also to what someone does, it really empowers them not only to be a better parent, but to have more confidence and a sense of competence in all other areas. Right, right. It just makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and it's very interesting because there are trends in this direction. For example, when the new Chilean president, Michelle Bachelet, first came to power, one of her first acts was education training and monetary help for poor caregivers. I do want to say something here. People will say, well, how can you quantify the value of caring and caregiving? And not only can you, but it's being done. I... Um, Well, one salient example is that the Swiss government uh, has been for years now doing just that, and they found that if the unpaid work of caring and caregiving in households, which is mostly still done by women, if that were 
included, it would be 70%, 70% of the reported Swiss GDP. I mean, we're talking about a huge, huge economic contribution. Mm-hmm. That's huge, yeah. And so should we write our Congress people? <laughs> what should we do to Absolutely. Well, we're happen. working on a real, um, I mean, on a Real Wealth of America Act. Oh. Basically, uh, you know, just as we have uh, environmental impact metrics yeah. to develop a system of metrics where any bill that's introduced mm. uh, would have to meet certain uh, uh you know, answer certain questions. What will be the impact on families? What will be the impact on health? What will be, you see where I'm going here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what will be the, I mean, it's not just the environment. We're talking about human beings here, about people. Absolutely. What we're talking about is really changing to begin with mm-hmm. the conversation and from there changing the, the rules of the game. Uh, the economic indicators are very faulty, GDP and GNP. Sure. Uh, the uh, reward system uh, is very, very faulty. But the first step, and every one of us can do this, is to just start talking about caring and economics in the same breath, you know, about caring economics. Mm-hmm. Call uh, radio shows, uh, blog about it, uh, just change the conversation, and people will say, well, what does that do? Well, when we moved from the Middle Ages to today, the conversation radically changed from normative ideals such as fealty, obedience, the, you know, the, the, the language changed to freedom, equality. So let's put caring and economics together because, frankly, socialism and capitalism still have many, they have some partnership elements both, sure. but they have a lot of dominator elements. We need to leave those behind, and then we need to move forward. Well, the caring revolution is what you said you called the program, and that's what I'm calling for. That's wonderful. Rian, this has been such a great hour, and it's gone by so fast. And I want to make sure people know how to reach you and learn more about the work you're doing. What can they do? Well, my website is Rian Eisler, and that's R-I-A-N-E-E-I-S-L-E-R, RianEisler.com. There's another website of the Center for Partnership Studies, which is PartnershipWay.org. So they can get materials from those websites. Uh, they can sign up for our e-letter the you know the Rian news, uh, but the main thing I really want to invite people is to become active in the caring revolution. Mm-hmm. Use the real wealth of nations as what it's meant to be, a tool. A tool. Thank you so much, Rian. You're one of the great thinkers of our time, and I have been very privileged to have you with us today on Leading Conversations. So remember, everybody. Think big because the world could become a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-B-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.